if you if you spend a week walking towards something, it's going to become important. I don't know what to tell you, right? Right. It, right. It, it, there's no way around that because you're going to spend all this effort, all this energy, you know, moving towards your destination. And if that destination is one which is related to your faith and to the most important things, then that's what's going to happen. It's going to make those important things more vivid to you, more present to you, more part of your life. And so I think that that's really the that's a way for modern people to understand pilgrimage and the importance of pilgrimage. Jonathan Peugeot, good to be talking with you again. Yeah, it's good to see you again. It's been a while, I guess, huh? Things yeah, go fast. Well, Man, I could say that you're, uh, it's understandable because you seem to be very busy. There seems to be a lot of exciting things happening in the symbolic world. Yeah, definitely. You know, we've had a lot of things, you know, we had some problems last year with the website and all these kind of, all this crazy stuff that was going on. We had some problems with our, the person, the people making our website and, uh, you know, it took a few, we tried to figure out a way out and then luckily we're able to kind of get out of trouble, made a wonderful company called Resonance that has been helping us. And uh, now the website I feel is exactly what I wanted. You know, it's, it's got a community. We've got like 1200 members in the, in the symbolic world community on the website, kind of meeting each other, discussing, you know, having reading groups and stuff. So that's really cool. It's exactly what I was hoping. Um, and then you know, then then the the blog is starting is back up. Cormac Jones has taken uh, over from JP, and that's great. You know, uh, yeah, just it just seems like there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Yeah, I mean, you have like a new logo, new branding, new website. It's just like it seemed to happen all at once too. Yeah, well, it's been in the planning for a long time. It's just that we had so many logistical problems with the website that kind of took over everything that uh, everything, you know, things just kind of got halted and, and we're in the sidelines. And then when that kind of broke through, then everything was able to come out at once. And so I'm really happy about the logo, especially working with Heather Paulington, who designed it. She's also did the illustrations for the new Snow White project, mm. and she's going to act as um, creative director for Symbolic World Press. So just in general, she's been oh, an yeah. amazing, amazing asset for, for going forward. I hired, uh, working with a new person, her name is Melissa Lauro. She is going to head Symbolic World Press and is also going to help with a lot of the other stuff like, you know, the website and, and the community and try to make that exciting and as interactive as possible. So yeah, in general, it feels like it's uh, there's some good stuff. I feel like I have a good team now. So That's awesome. Uh, now, is that like a mosaic behind you? Of the Yeah, so that was logo? made by my carving assistant, David, who did the who basically made the logo for as a mosaic with like different marbles and then gold leaf and stuff. So no, it's it's that's I'm really, really awesome. happy about that. It looks cool. Yeah. Now, uh, so the, tell me a little bit more about the press, uh, because I'm just been that was like a dream come true for me. I just got to say, because, you know, once you put out the blog and that was out there um that's immediately where my mind went i was like oh my gosh well if you're doing a blog you might as well do a press so like yeah um so what's 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 ahead what are some of the things that will, will be published well i mean it's a <clears throat> the press is mostly let's say it's it was really to kind of capture god's dog because one of the things that happened is that you know we did god's dog and i almost died like it <laughs> almost killed me. it was so <laughs> difficult the, you know, because, you know, the crowdfunding stuff, the logistics, dealing with taxes, dealing with printers, dealing with all this stuff, it's all 
this like logistical stuff that I'm that I can do, but I'm not that good at, you know, I'm really not that good at that stuff. So we rendered up, we, we ran into all these problems, you know, with VAT in the UK and, and all these problems, with the government and stuff. And we just we were struggling. So I thought, okay, there's no way I'm doing that again. Like it's just not happening. Either we'd not publish book two, or I need to find a way out of this. And starting the press was in some ways a way to kind of it was either go with uh, we had people that wrote us that wanted to publish God's dog for us, you know, that mm. would have taken over it. But I just really wanted to keep control over the whole creative process. And so, yeah, that's when, you know, I was working with Deacon Nicholas Kotar. You, you probably have talked to him. He's mm -hmm. been he was amazing. He kind of helped me get out of the mess I was in. And he worked so hard to help with the website and to kind of help deal with that. Start the, the, the newsletter like he's just been awesome. And then he introduced me to Melissa, who's running the press. And so in some ways, it's some it's it's a way for me to be able to keep doing what I want to do without having to deal with all the logistical problems. So basically, it's a vehicle for God's dog. And it, then it's going to be a vehicle for these fairy tale stories. That's the that's kind of the launching pad. And then after that, it's going to be, you know, I have interesting projects that I'd like to do with Richard Rowland regarding universal history. Um, you know, maybe, you know, edit some of the articles I published for Orthodox Art Journal that kind of stuff. And then there's also the magazine, the Symbolic World magazine, which we're going to publish, which is part of the things we're going to do. So it just kind of like ramping up yeah. and and see where we go. Mostly it's to recapture storytelling, have a space for people to be able to publish high quality things. You know, we have to be careful not to get carried away because obviously the book world is tricky. We want to make sure that the projects are all financially viable and will actually generate a profit. Uh, but, uh, but there's so many amazing people around, uh, around that have kind of been gathering around the symbolic world, you know, Martin Shaw, Paul Kingsnorth now, you know, Neil DeGrade, uh, Deacon Nicholas, um, who else? Richard Rowland, obviously, you know, and there's all these amazing people, uh, and then some of the people writing for symbolic world, Cormac, JP, all these people. So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, all these people around. And so we'll see what, what that brings, but it's not, so we're starting with the fairy tales, God's dog. Uh, there'll be the magazine and then we'll see from there. There's a few secret projects that I can't mention yet. But oh, the secret projects. Soon. Yeah, uh, we mentioned very soon. So, uh, so it's coming. Okay. Okay. We'll stay tuned for that. Um, I mean, gosh, you, so you mentioned the, the, the newsletter and the magazine, the magazines, I have a minor role in that one right now, just uh, putting some, some textual interviews together. Some are complete and uh are going to be really exciting. I'm really excited for the magazine because it's like you take several of the members of the blog, right? So not just you, of course, it's a community. Uh, and now they get to to take part in this like physical thing too. Yeah. And so uh, so it, I mean, it's exciting. It's a little scary because obviously it's not like this is the, it's not golden age of printed magazines right now. So we have to like, I mean, you know, we, we're that I'm, I'm trying to figure it out how to do it. We need to, a way to do it to kind of make it as an event so that people get excited about it and, and people participate. Um, and so that's kind of the way we have to think about publishing. Now we can't just think about publishing stuff. We have to really think of publishing as events, like cultural events, things that are marking and that are important um, because, you know, we are in the waning phase of publishing. So we have to think about it that way. But I, mm -hmm. but I do think that the symbolic world and kind of this cultural shift and this mind shift that's happening, you know, it's exciting enough to generate people's attention. I think so. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love too is that it's it's getting people participating in like the analog world. You could say, yeah, just of like course. things with physical mediums, you know, because so much of 
the interactions and what happens. It's uh, all digital. Oh, it's so digital. And man, you can accidentally suck people in in a negative way too, you know, despite your best efforts. Yeah. And that was in some ways the worry I had for the symbolic world uh, community, the circle community on the website. You know, it's like, oh, you know, uh, how much should we do? But I think, I think in some ways, you know, the fact that we always point to people going to church and to participating in their local communities and their families and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's fine to have online communities too. We just have to make sure that they're, they're properly ordered in, in the hierarchy. But what I have seen is the real return. To, like I have seen it happening, you know, in, in my parish, for example, now there's a whole crew of young guys that are super involved in the parish, you know, doing uh, they started a work co-op uh, called oh, Symbolitech. Cool which is really cool. And they're basically working together. They do morning prayers together and they, they kind of have, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on all over the, all all over North America, especially that is showing me that, you know, we're not just sucking people into the digital world. We're also giving them ways to go out and to participate in their own community. So. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, it's one of the books I read recently. I don't know. It's on the shelf. I don't know. Somewhere over here is uh, Stephen King's on writing. Okay. And one of the things he said that like just stood out to me was the reason why he reads so much is because there's no commercials. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there isn't, it was like just a really quick one line, but it just, man, it's just so, so much packed in there. It's like, there's not this inundation. There's not this side door that you can kind of like, Oh, Hey, there's a YouTube short, you know, you go to watch like this quality universal history podcast. And all of a sudden there's this little suggestion for a short. And all of a sudden three hours later, you're like, what just happened? Yeah. Where did I go? Like, how yeah. did, Oh man, no, I know exactly how you feel. TikTok and that kind of stuff, all these shorts and are the worst, you know, for that, for the attention. Yeah. I just got sucked down my, my first uh, TikTok short type of uh, wormhole. And I was just like, Oh my goodness. You know, it's like kind of like I fell into the pit. Lord help yeah, me. Yeah, we're grown up. Imagine you're 12. Oh, it's so bad. I I think about that a lot. I think about yeah. a lot with having kids, especially because like my kids are six and three. And so it's like it's not an issue yet. Yeah. It, it's it take around it's 10, 11 into 12. It depends. You know, it it's hard. It's a tough world with the digital stuff because you know, we our daughter, we had homeschooled all these years and we sent our daughter to school. Um, and she was in seventh grade, I think, when she went first time. Mm. And the first year, we we're like, well, you don't need a phone. There's, you just don't need a phone. You're just not going to have one. And so we just kind of insisted. And she didn't have a phone for the for a whole year. And then we realized at the end of the year that she just didn't have any friends. That she just literally mm. didn't have any friends. And because, because the conversations between the groups continues on messaging. And so if mm. you don't have access to messaging, you just don't have friends. Mm-hmm. It was really a shocker. And we had to kind of accept that 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 was really the case that if she if we wanted her to have a social network she had to have a phone and then it's like then you have to engage into like hygiene you know like what kind of digital hygiene are you going to impose and these schedules and these rules and it's like it's exhausting yeah yeah truly and also you spend all of this time you know trying to set all of these parameters in place just to make sure she has a somewhat healthy engagement with the digital world yeah it's tough yeah. yeah, but I feel I feel like, especially for older kids, we did a good job. You know, like my son and daughter, they barely use social media. My daughter will, you know, she'll 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 use Instagram for messaging, and then she'll install it for like months at a time. They don't have TikTok. They don't, you know. So it's I feel like it's okay. It's not perfect. Obviously, you wish no one had like they didn't have them at all. But 
I feel like we, we've done a good job. The younger, my youngest daughter is a little tougher, you know, because she's 12 and it's like, a, she's the baby kid too. Cause so it's like things get, get to her faster. So that's mm. more of a struggle, but we're, yeah, my wife has been amazing at, at trying to also install that kind of hygiene. Um, my life, or excuse me, my kid's life right now is like, they live in like a little garden of Eden. That's great. Um, like literally like this <laughs> week, their life has consisted of roaming around the garden, searching for baby toads and collecting as many baby toads as they can. And it's like, that's their life. You know, yeah. no ads, no crazy, crazy things flashing in front of them. Um, yeah, that's the best way to do it. You know, our kids, when we were homeschooling, they were allowed like one hour of screen a week. And then maybe sometimes like a movie, like if we watch it together as a family and that mm -hmm. was it, like they just didn't have access to screens and, yeah, they just had a really full childhood, you know, like you said, dude, running That's around awesome. in the woods and playing with their friends, you know, hitting each other with yes. sticks or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, one of the things we're doing too is uh, my mom gave me a bunch of uh, the old VHSs that I grew up watching. Mm -hmm. so, like, <laughs> they're growing up in a VHS world. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. But I mean, even then it's like we took a break from talking <clears throat> animal animation. And so it's like, uh, because i don't know like their imaginative it started affecting their imaginative world and i didn't think it was the healthiest of ways so then it was like of that selection is like five movies we could watch right but those are really good five movies uh, yeah and you know kind of reminded me of uh what gk chesterson talked about the eternal appetite for infancy and how uh god is or we have grown older than god mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember that quote but um it was basically just uh God says like to the sun and the moon, oh, great job rising and, and orbiting and all of that. Like, uh, do it again. Just do it again. And there's this eternal appetite for infancy of just like, let's do it again. Let's, and it's just over and over again. It's like, I look at my daughter and she's just like that. You know, she has this appetite of like, let's watch it again. Let's watch it again. Let's, let's do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I find myself, uh, it's super healthy for me. Like she's challenging me of like, no, 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 pick a few good things. And just like go deeper, you know, watch it again, notice more patterns, notice more details. And so, yeah, it's like your kids who ask you to read the same story over and over, you know, and you, you just get tired of it. But they're like, no, they're figuring it out. You know, they're like diving in and they're paying attention. They're memorizing. They're doing all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember, our, yeah, our kids had like we had when I, when my kids were young, we just had these little ladybug fairy tales. They're great because they were just a fairy tale, beautiful illustrations, <clears throat> you know, 20 minute read. And I just had all the whole collection of all these fairy tales and we just cycle through them over and over and over and they just never get tired, you know, just go over and over the same stories. It was great. Mm -hmm. And then you get to do it again with the next kid too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we're expecting uh, our third child now. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah. In, in October. So um, yeah, I, I, I think about that. It's like, I get to, you know, go through these stories with one, then the next and the next, and then some things you get to do together. It's just, I don't know. I, I think uh, the way you describe it, it just inspires me. It's like, I think it gives me glimpses of like, this is what family looks like. This is mm -hmm. what health looks like to where it's like, it's not just like top down, like all of the instruction and the inspirations coming from, you know, the parents to the child, but it's actually like, it's a whole unit where it's like, where things that they do, start influencing and helping me see the world in a better place. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, there's um, 
one one thing that I really wanted to get into today, uh, the reason why I reached out to you to have a discussion is one of your newsletters uh, where you discussed having a, a pilgrimage with your son uh, over to uh, Mount Athos. You guys traveled to the Holy Mount Athos. Yeah, it was my dad too. It was my father and my son. Okay. Yeah. So I want to, I do want to get into that, but I did have one more question uh, re- regarding your, your latest project with Snow White. So why don't we like bookmark Matt Athos? And then sure. I just, uh, I got to say, man, you're, so if people don't know, Jonathan Bajot, he released the Kickstarter for the Snow White fairy tale project. Uh, and it's a series of eight and it pretty much blew up the Kickstarter platform. I mean, there, the, maybe you could speak into this, but I thought the response was just astounding. Um, yeah, so we're why don't really you just describe what's going on with the Snow White project and how people can find it? Yeah, well, in some ways, I think it's a it's a Kairos moment, you know. Obviously, this I've been thinking about fairy tales forever. You can imagine just my, you know, I just love fairy tales and so meditating on them. And I wrote a version of Snow White a while ago as a little play for my kids when we were homeschooling. And I had had some insights about the story. And it was kind of just Molly. I was going over my head, and at some point, I, I watched people complain about Disney and about the way that storytelling is going, and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, and you know, people were just complaining about where it's going. And I thought, you know, this isn't this isn't going anywhere. We can't just complain. And even myself, in some of my movie interpretations, I do that. Right? It's like, you know, look at how bad storytelling has become. And I thought, no, we need to, we we actually need to use this moment and to retell the story, to do it in a celebratory way <clears throat> and maybe learn from the postmodern moment. I think there's some subtlety and some insight that we can learn from a postmodern moment and also even from modern storytelling in terms of character arcs and stuff, which aren't necessarily in the fairy tales. But, um, but that was it. I thought, like, let's just do it. And so I, I, wrote, I rewrote Snow White now as a story and I was really excited about some of the insights I had and I thought, why don't we do it like as these arcs of four story tale, four stories of female led characters, four stories of male led characters mm. and do it in a way that is kind of postmodern because you'll have crisscrossing characters and themes that will kind of echo each other through the stories. There'll be like a general arc that goes through the whole story as well. Um, but then also kind of do what we did in God's dog, which is set it in some ways in a Christian mythological universe. That is mm. to have things that are, pointing towards how this is embedded in a christian world obviously no no uh you know uh, polemics it's not a, it's not there to convince anybody of anything there's no evangel- evangelism if you're hoping for that you're not going to get it in the story mm-hmm. but what it is it's mostly just bringing out the tropes that are already pointed to christian uh storytelling in the stories and kind of surprise and surprise people with some hagiographical also connections and stuff like that um what do you mean by hagiographical sorry what do you mean by hagiographical that means like some legend from the saint stories you know uh also legend from the just the christian mythological world like the golden legend or all these other things that we talk about in universal history with richard roland just kind of surprise people with some of those connections uh like connections even to troy connections to to all these these old stories uh very subtle but for people that are aware, they'll be able to pick up, pick up on them. Um, so that's the idea. And then to get the best illustrators, you know, just amazing world-class illustrators. And Heather is just, um, is just awesome. And some of the other illustrators we have also lined up are just great. So, uh, so that's the plan is to just like, let's do this and have fun and make something beautiful and 
is something that competes with anything that's being made today. You know, I like it. It's almost uh, it, it's interesting to me that because it's not just like a one-off. Here's Snow White that it's tied to like eight other stories or eight total stories. I mean, it's kind of like the multiverse or like, you know, like this, uh, the greater, like say Marvel universe. Where yeah, there's like something all of these that. Interacting stories. Yeah, there's something of that. I think that that's something that the postmodern storytelling has done really well, which is if you look at um, some of the fairy tale universes, there was a whole series called Fables done by, uh, I think, was it Grant Morrison? I'm not sure. Anyway, so one of those is one like it was these vertical vertical comics. Then there was Into the Woods and Once mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time, I think it was called, or Once or something. Disney did a whole like kind of series of grown up fairy tales that all these characters that interact with each other, uh, you know, Shrek did it. So it's like that's kind of collage storytelling is very interesting if we would use it to provide insight rather than use it to be cynical and to point out power dynamics and to to show how smart we are you know and how we kind of can see through the dark aspects of these stories which is what it's usually used to do what Mm -hmm. i'm trying to do is rather you know like there are tropes in the stories right so let's say snow white falls asleep sleeping beauty falls asleep what's the connection so you can create a narrative connection Mm -hmm. but you can also create a meaning connection which by the time you get by the time you read the second one, you have this meta awareness of what this pattern is doing in the story. And you can even have the characters be aware and like remember the old one and then interact with these different these different versions of the of the tropes. So that's the kind of thing that we're doing mm-hmm. in the in the in the whole series. That's really but awesome. It's still a story for kids. Like it's it's still gonna be you can still read it to your eight-year-old and the they'll love it. But as an adult, you'll be able to kind of see these these deeper things going on. Well, hopefully it seems like it has every potential to be one of those stories that I get to read over and over and over and over again with my daughter and the rest of my kids. Yeah. There also, there all, there will also be narrative elements that won't be in the story. They'll, so there'll be narrative elements that play through the images and that aren't described. So it's almost like when you read a comic book, you've got that, right? You read, when you read a comic, you can't just pay attention to the bubbles. You have to look at the images. And so oh, right. we're doing that in a kind of storybook version of that, where there are some elements of the of the story that are only there in the images. Yeah. And some of the teaser images that you've posted so far are just beautiful. Just yeah, amazing. The, 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 and we're also pulling in Christian icon, iconographic elements into the story. So using kind of medieval types of images, certain tropes that you find in icons or that you find in, in medieval uh, manuscripts, uh, and then pulling that type of composition and those types of tropes into the, <clears throat> into the illustrations as well. Trying to make it world class. Right. Like that's the point, you know, not, not just don't, don't, how can I say this? Would we let's not accept mediocrity and mediocrity in any way like no way we can need to make this the best so. well it seems like you're pulling out all the stops for this one yeah <laughs> yeah and it did really well kickstarter you know they made us one of their favorite whatever beloved projects i forget projects we love and then we even got some emails from like the head of publishing at kickstarter just saying how happy they are about the project so it's wow uh, no, it's good yeah uh, i mean have you met all of your benchmarks have you met the goals yeah, for well, I mean, depends. Like, obviously, the, my my point, my purpose is to actually generate as much money as possible because I'm not going to take that money. I'm basically going to use it to start the publishing company. And so, the more we have, mm. the more we'll be able to have these projects in advance. You know, because you know, we don't. I I 
let's say I thought about borrowing money to like borrowing capital to start, but then mm. there were always strings attached. Of course, normally there's strings attached in terms of ownership, in terms of, in terms of, of, uh, of what that mean. And I just decided, no, I, I don't want to, I don't want that. I just want to do it myself. And so, so crowdfunding is a great way to do it. And so this will fund salaries, it'll fund operations, and it'll also fund the beginning of the other projects, like paying illustrators in advance to be able to make the books. So that's the point. But but, but obviously we're we're happy how, how it's going. There's still 17 days left. And I think, I forget what the amount is. I think we're around 175 US, uh, something like that. 200. Wow, man. Yeah. Well, there's your seed money. That's awesome. Yeah, we hope so. That's the point, yeah. Now, something that you published in your newsletter, and I didn't know that uh, Nicholas Kotar helped you get that set up. I'm really glad they did. He has a fantastic newsletter. Yeah. I'm kind of a newsletter nerd. So I'm, okay. I'm glad that, uh, unlike the magazine, this is the age of the newsletter, seemingly. So, um, uh, And one thing that you mentioned in a publication about a month or two ago is this story of a pilgrimage to the Holy Mount Athos with your son and your father. And... At the same time, your son was turning 18 and it was Lent and it was the 20th anniversary of you coming into the Orthodox Christian Church. Um, and so it just, when I finished reading, I just had so many, so many questions. So I'm hoping that you'd be open to, you know, sharing that story, but then us maybe getting into a talk about like uh, how you talk a lot about patterns, but how do we see patterns play out in pilgrimage? You know, what's the difference between a pilgrimage and just like how moderns would consider like an adventure, you know? So yeah. if you would, Jonathan, just uh, <laughs> tell us a story of you going to the Holy Mount Athos. Yeah, well, it started out because my son is going to probably, it, it seems, I mean, he's accepted everything. There might be some hiccups, but he's he's going to the Coast Guard. He wants to join the Coast Guard, which means he's going to like Coast Guard, a Coast Guard college here in Canada to become a ship's captain. And so that means that he's going to be gone. Like he's 18, but he's leaving for like four years and he only gets two weeks off during the summer and maybe like a week at Christmas. So we're not going to see him really very much. And so we had talked about the idea that we should do uh, some kind of trip together, father, son. And we talked about doing the Camino, you know, going to St. James of Compostela. That was one of the possibilities. And then I thought, well, why don't we just go to Athos? That'd be cool. And uh, he was really into it. And it just all worked out that we could do it when it was his 18th birthday. Um, and then my dad kind of started showing interest to, at coming. So we thought, all right, that'd be cool. It's be like three Peugeot generations, you know, uh, going to Mount Athos together. So um, <clears throat> it was part of a bigger trip. You know, we uh, there was that we went to Slovakia, my whole family, um, because my wife is from Slovakia. First time my kids were able to go mm -hmm. and meet some of their cousins and visit the places where my my wife grew up. And then we went to to France with my daughter and my son, and we ended up going to Rome as well. So there was just it was a it was like a six week trip, pretty much uh, with work in there. You know, we did stuff for Daily Wire and there was different things that I was doing, different conferences and stuff anyways. And so part of that was like uh, it was I think it was like almost 10 days at Mount Athos. And uh, so my father met us at Thessaloniki and we, we drove in, went to, you know, took the ferry, you take this ferry. It's pretty cool. You kind of, these ferry that kind of hops from monastery to monastery. So you, you leave civilization and then you come to the first monastery and it's, it's amazing because it's, you know, these monasteries are like, they're like fortified, little fortified cities. Mm -hmm. And so they're very impressive. They've got these massive walls, you know, they're near the, really near the Mediterranean 
And then you can see the church kind of peek out from the walls and, uh, and it's very colorful. You have these, uh, the rooms are directly into the walls of the monastery. And so you know, sometimes they kind of po poke out with like wooden beans to kind of hold off these little parts that are painted blue and pink. And, and it's just this really surreal fairy tale world that you're coming into. And all the monasteries are, have monks in them now, you know, they have quite a few monks, 50, 60 monks, sometimes a hundred or more monks in the monasteries, obviously nowhere near the heyday in the middle ages, but also much better than the, you know, just in the nineties or in the eighties, seventies, when things were actually not doing well in Monathos, the, the Monathos was pretty much dying by the nineties. Wow. And so now there's this like revival of monasteries and the monasteries are actually quite wealthy. They, they all own land outside of the monasteries that they rent out and they do stuff like that. And so they're pristine, you know, all like stone cobble, uh, interiors with just flowers everywhere and 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 beautiful wow. uh, churches. All everything is being renovated. You know, all the frescoes are being cleaned. It's like a, it's in terms of of the state of the monasteries. It's just astounding. It's so beautiful. Um, and so you arrive at the monastery and there's you know you you get a room and you can stay there. We were staying. We set it up. Well, actually, it was Timothy Petitza who helped me set it up. Oh, cool. Uh, because usually you go from monastery to monastery. And Timothy was like, I've got, I've got the guy, I've got the guy's name is father Jeremias. He's a Texan convert to orthodoxy, just wonderful priest and, and monk, really warm and, and kind, just amazing. And so he met us there and we stayed at two monasteries, uh, Xenophon monastery and Pentecretor monastery, a dead or kind of sister monasteries. Um, and so we we ended up staying at the same monastery and then we'd do day trips during the day instead of changing monasteries every day. And that was really actually mm -hmm. really good to do that because we got into the life of the monastery. You kind of get the rhythm of the prayer life and then you start to also know people. You you, you know, you meet the different monks and different priests and you have conversations. Uh, so it was really wonderful. There's a priest at the Xenophon Monastery. His name is Father Lukash. And he uh, he's just I mean, he's an astounding. He's an iconographer. He's an icon carver. He carves all these. Uh, he carves stone, you know, which is so wild that 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 he carves stone. So I was able to meet with him and see some of his amazing carvings, um, making beautiful objects. So it's just it's just like a magical place. I don't know what to tell you. You've got your room and you've got a window onto the Mediterranean. And there's these little balconies you can just sit there and and look at the ocean and look at the at the sea. You could see Mount Olympus from where we were. So like wow. across the sea, wow. you can see like Mount Olympus from Mount Athos. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. So just break that down a little bit. Why is that like a significant thing happening? I know it's just it's just kind of cool to think of this like old mountain that used to represent the old world and the the old gods, but then now you're at Mount Athos, which has these thriving monasteries. You know, it's like the new holy place you could say of of right, Greece. Right. So you kind of look on to Mount Olympus from Mount Athos. You know, there's a connection but also a difference you know it's like it's this is a different world it's a it's not a world of jealous gods and of you know fighting fighting principalities but it's you know it's a place that's that's dedicated to god himself and and a orderly procession of of angels and saints you know that love each other and live mm. that you know that that all worship god together and so you can kind of see the difference between the two worlds uh so that was just an insight that we that we had um, and so, yeah, so you just, you wake up at three in the morning uh, and that's when the services start. 
and uh, you go to six, three to six in the in the night, and then at six in the morning there's a uh, there's a little break. You go, you can do whatever you want. We would sleep is what we would do. <laughs> go to sleep <laughs> from like six to eight. Then there's a little service before uh, breakfast. Uh, then you have breakfast. I mean, it's amazing because the, the the refectories <clears throat> are right next to the church. Sometimes mm -hmm. like it's actually in the, in Xenophon monastery, the old church, it's actually connected directly. You don't even go outside. You, you walk out of the church in the procession into the refectory mm -hmm. and then you sit and you eat, you know, surrounded by frescoes still all these like 16th century frescoes in the, in the dining hall. Um, it's really, it's really amazing. You know, it's just, a, it's just a magical thing to kind of move this liturgical extension of life. Um, and then, then the monks have their work, their day's work. And so they'll leave after breakfast and then they'll work all day until the, the evening. Uh, then a little service uh, before dinner. And then people, then in theory, you've got the day, you've got the night off at around like eight, eight or nine or something like that. Then you're kind of off. Unless right. there's a vigil, and we had a vigil once, that's crazy. I don't know how the monks do it. It's just well, insane. Do. So basically, like, imagine you wake up at three in the morning, right? And then you go until six, and you have your little break. You have breakfast, and then you have a service and breakfast. You work all day. Then what they would do is instead of having a service and dinner, you would have a dinner, and then they would start the vigil from, from like I think it was from seven to two in the morning. So you just got up at three the night before, right? And then so now you're like, then then you're like doing this like massive, wow, you know, you know, like five, six hours, seven hour, whatever. Like sometimes they're longer. These massive vigils. So you're hitting like the twenty four hour mark by the time yeah. you're actually all. And done. the vigils are just nuts because they have the most beautiful singing, and then they also light the the chandeliers, and they have these chandeliers that are you know, this coral chandelier, it's like a circle that's hung mm. from the dome. Uh, if you've seen my interview with Andrew Gould, you can see it, what it looks like. It's like a, it's like all this faceted ring that has all these candles on it. And then from the center of the dome, you have another chandelier. It's like a more traditional kind of chandelier that you, that you, that's hanging and has all these candles on it. Mm. And so during the vigil service, and I think during other services as well, but I saw it mostly during the vigil service is they spin the coros. And so they spin the chandelier with candles Whoa. on it. And then in the middle, they kind of turn the chandelier in the middle. So you've got this like spinning thing. And then in the middle, you've got this thing that's like going around. It's like this like cosmic dance, you know, it's like a Orthodox disco or something. <laughs> uh, but it's really impressive because you're, you're just standing there for hours in the dark with like candles. And all of a sudden there's this thing. Wow. There's yeah, this it's orbiting quite, lights and yeah, oh, these man. like orbiting lights. It's like, you wow. know, these dancing, these dancing uh, light. So it's, yeah, it's quite it's quite something, and the Greek chanting is very obviously very beautiful. It has that mm. as the eson or whatever, and then you have this kind of chanting on top of it. Uh, it's really it's really beautiful. Now, were they speaking in Greek or were they speaking in English? So I would say most monks know some English. They're quite educated. Uh, it's not like like in the past where a lot of the monks were kind of, you know, some monks were illiterate or not very educated. Now most of the monks 
are quite educated. They all have studied mm. in universities and stuff. So I would say most of the monks knew English, but they did speak Greek, uh, you know, because they're in Greece and they're all mostly Greeks. Although there mm. are some interesting, interesting things that happened, like really wild to me. It was, like, it was just so shocking. There was a young monk, a young uh, monk. He was Asian and uh, he was kind of looking at me. You know, I could see. And, and then after a while, I kind of went up to him and said hello. And he said, oh, he said, Mr. Pedro. And I said, oh, wow. I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, you're the reason why I became a monk. Really? I was so quiet. I'm like, Whoa. that is the craziest thing ever. Like, you know, you just think you just you just kind of bowled over by. OK. All right. OK. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, that's wild. So so that was and, and so it was really surprising. A few times I was in the monasteries and people like some of the younger monks or younger people there would 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 recognize me. And that was a little overwhelming to mm. me. One of the most overwhelming things that have happened to me, because if you go to a talk or you go to, you know, you're in a big city and someone recognizes you, it's weird. But then someone tells you, it's like, I'm here and I'm, I like dedicated my entire life to Christ and you're part of that story. It's like, man, wow. wow. That's really kind of, okay, Jonathan, get your act together, dude. You got to step up. It's quite so sobering indeed. Yeah, man. Uh, what was it like in those like dark early morning and midnight hours where there's chanting and there's things happening? Like what, what was that experience like? Well, you don't understand what's going on. It's not easy because it's not in English. It's in Greek. So it's obviously a very strange thing to be sitting there at, you know, four in the morning in the dark with someone chanting in Greek. Um, but what happens is in some ways you kind of settle into just a basic prayer. You know, you do the Jesus prayer hmm. or you just kind of stay there, sit there in silence. Um and then, you know, I would pray for people, just kind of name the people that I love. And, um, but it, yeah, and it, there's some, it kind of acts on you. I don't know how to say it. And so it really, for me, it was helpful. You know, your sins pop up, you know, it's like mm. you start to real, you know, you, you, because you're just sitting there in silence, you know, basically surrounded by prayer. Uh, and so you, you know, you're, you start to see your sins, you start to see, um, be grateful. Like I experienced a lot of gratitude, I would say, while I was there, just mm -hmm. gratitude for everything God has done in my life. Um, you know, for my family, for the, the wonderful people around me, for all the opportunities. And, and so that's the thing that was, those are things that were, that were going on, you know, and sometimes you're just also, sometimes you feel like you're going to lose your mind because you're just so tired. You just, mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to stay awake. You're just trying to hold on, you know, for, for the just for uh, by your fingernails you know and sometimes you end up dozing off a bit and stuff <laughs> uh but i think that it yeah like i said i think that it really does in some ways just the the, the fact of taking that time to just sit there and in silence and surrounded by prayer is just that is worth it i mean you wouldn't have to do it at mount athos but it's like mount athos forces you to do it in some ways mm. um and then you meet these priests and these monks that are just so light, hmm. you know, that are, that have a kind of joy. Um, what were some of like the, the standout um, interactions with like maybe one or two of the monks? Can you think of one example? Yeah. I mean, I think that father, the father Lukash, the, the, the priest, you know, he's really like a world-class iconographer you know he's just one of the mm -hmm. best in the world he did the iconography for the uh 
for the the shrine the greek uh i forget the name of the the who it's dedicated to but the church that was destroyed during 9 11 that was rebuilt recently mm. uh so he did the iconography in that church and so wow. he really is like a world class but he just has this kind of simple humility to him you know you meet him and he just has this kind of just very simple smile and very simple. And he's also like, he's a priest in the church. He does the liturgy. He was doing the liturgy all the time. He was, he was, he was constantly one of the people who was leading the services. Uh, and you just think, wow, what a, just what a life, you know? Um, and uh, he was just so kind and so humble and just so kind of excited to see my carving, which is like, dude, this guy is like the, you know, just this kind of, I don't know how to say just this kind of just genuine, you know, interest in talking to you genuine, despite being one of the best in the world. And despite being like the spiritual father for all these people and stuff. So I think that was the thing that really touched me was to see those types of, of kind of, you know, we met the, um, the abbot at uh, Pantocrator monastery and just like, just highly, highly educated man, but with like the kind of almost like mischievous eyes of a child, hmm. uh, you know, we, it was so cool because we he they, they he brought us to the treasury and showed us like he knew that I was interested in in, in art obviously and so we went to the treasury and saw these amazing things you know, they have these 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 amazing icons but also amazing manuscripts and um, my son was there and my son is more like a technical guy like he's more into engineering you know programming he loves Arduino mm. and like making stuff and and so he's he's not he's not that he's not artistic but he's just not it's not his main thing and so the mm -hmm. the abbot asked him after we finished visiting the treasury he said what what marked all of you and so i kind of said what what thing that i really kind of sees me and my dad said it and my son's like well you know he's being honest he's like you know i visit these museums all the time with my dad and i'm here i'm kind of doing this all the time and so there wasn't anything in particular that i saw that marked me and 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 then the abbot kind of insisted and my son held his horse you know held on to his thing he said look i don't want to like, I'm not going to lie. I just, I'm just telling you, like, there just wasn't anything that was really. And so the abbot said, all right, so I think we have to create memories for you. So hmm. we, we like left and we went down and brought to the library, to the library of the monastery. And so there's like these, you know, there's all these, these, these books that are held in, in these like uh, cloth bags, you know, all, all like written and everything. So he takes one out and he puts it on the table. It's like, there's like this, like zipper or something. He opens it up. Then he tells my son, he says, here, put your hand in it and just pull the book out. And so he like opens it up and he pulled the book. I said, so this is a 12th century manuscript. And so he has my son pull it out. this like massive manuscript. And then he just, he just lets him hanging there with the book in his hands, you know, <laughs> and he's okay. Just put it down. You know, he puts it down. Uh, and then, uh, and then he looks at my son. He said, he said, you'll remember that, right? It was, so yeah. cool. it was like yeah he's never gonna forget that he's like holding this like super precious like yeah. illuminated manuscript that's like a 12th century thing anyway, wow. so that wow. was really that was a kind of interesting standout moment yeah well i just uh, i you're touching on some of the experiences for your son i just wonder overall like what was the the pilgrimage like yeah i mean we would go out and visit the monasteries and you could mm -hmm. give it, venerate the relics and i mean the, the the relics man it's crazy oh yeah you know because you you go to a, you go to a church and there's like a you know there's a relic there's like a little thing and yes. then there it's like well here's the leg of saint john chrysostom like here's the skull of saint george like here's the and you're just like oh, 
totally overwhelmed by these things. You know, it's so it's like, oh, here's the uh, here's the belt of the virgin. You know, it's like this is this is actually the the belt that fell from her when she was ascending, you know, uh, at the at the end of her at the end of her life, you know. And so it's just so overwhelming. It's hard to it's just hard to I don't know. It's hard to say. It's like they have these these pieces of the true cross, but not like piece of the true cross. Like here's this like massive chunk of the true Mm. cross. So that is that was just for me was was really uh, quite overwhelming, you know. Mm. And there was uh, they they in one of the Russian monasteries they had a reliquary with a relic of of Saint Christopher, uh, and they had him represented as a dog headed saint. That really kind of struck me. Oh, there you go. Yeah, wow. I was really struck by that. You know, that was quite touching. So wow. so all these moments of like realizing the reality of the of the faith and the reality of the mm. life of the church and you know how Mount Athos is this kind of uh, center of of holiness. But at least for me, you know, it's hard to to lie that, you know, I I love Christian art and I love iconography and on Monathos are some of the most amazing frescoes mm. in the world, like in the 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 city of Caries, which is the 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 one city in Monathos. There's a church called the Protaton, which is like the first church of Mount Athos, and it's not it's not one it's not one of the monasteries. It, it is the city, and that's where the administration of Mount Athos happens. And in that church, there are frescoes by Manuel Pancelinos, which are some of the most just, I mean, they're the things you look at, you know, you look in, you look at them in books for 20 years, you copy them, you do all this stuff, you mm. study them. And then all of a sudden to like, just walk into the church. Um, and to be able to see them was just uh, astounding. And then some of the mm. icons that I've copied myself, like that, I there's a version of the, of the last supper, um, that I made as a carving. One of my first carvings, super complicated. It's like a circular table, uh, you know, with all the 12 disciples and Christ. And it's like, it's this really elaborate uh, carving that I did. And I, I copied one of those images and then to see it. And they're all clean now. Like they've mm-hmm. all been cleaned. All these, these frescoes look fresh. Because one of the things that happened is that the frescoes, when the frescoes would get sooted up, they would get painted over. And so, you know, after you use incense and stuff in the church and candles, mm. at some point, the, the, the frescoes become black with soot. And so mm. they would paint over them. But what that did is that actually preserved these frescoes in a way that they're just pristine. So when they clean wow. them, it's like you're just right back in the 13th century, 14th century, 12th century, some of them. Uh, and that was just really striking to see these images, you know, so beautiful, so pristine. There, there's a little chapel we were walking through Eviron and this monk came up to me and he's like, he's like, Oh, I know who you are. And he said, you wrote an article on my brother. And I was like, mm-hmm. he knew me from Orthodox Arts Journal. He remembered that I'd written an article on his, on his brother, who is a, who is a uh, Romanian iconographer. Uh, and he's like, I want to show you something. So he brought us into this little chapel. And in this chapel, there's an icon of, of uh, uh, St. Gregory Palamas, which was painted by somebody who knew him. And so it's like, it's almost, it's like a portrait of St. Gregory Palamas, you know, uh, it's just like, and by it's someone like, that knew St. Gregory of Palamas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So basically painted like right after his death, basically, man. So it's like, it's, I mean, so there's things like that. I mean, that, that, when you see that, it's just really striking, you know, it's so, so there, there's quite a few of these little moments for me, at least that were related to, to art, you know, they, mm. the, um, 
Xenophon Monastery, they have a steatite icon, which is just beautiful. It's a beautiful icon. And it's, mm. it's, it's carved in this green, green steatite, you know, and, uh, and then for me, who one of the only people that is carving steatite in with icons now, it's mm. like, is like a little, definitely a little moment to, to be able to interact with these objects. Very cool. Can you tell us more about the wonder working or the, the floating icons? Some more yeah, like so, mysterious well, components to this. So every monastery has like a miraculous icon pretty much. And these icons, they're, <coughs> they're covered with rizas. That means that you barely see the icon anymore. They're like covered with these, these massively ornate gold and silver frames. Hmm. And most of these icons are, have, were found in the water. They, they like people just would find them floating towards the Mount Athos. And so, I mean, it's hard to know, you know, they, they come from, from Constantinople, they come from maybe from Constantinople, you know, with all the, the crusades and all the fighting and all these different things, you know, that these icons end up in the water and then they just kind of float on the Mediterranean. And so there's several of these miraculous icons that were found in the water. And some of them, hmm are like uh i mean obviously they they're the wonder working in the sense that a lot of people were healed by by you know mm -hmm. praying to the saint in front of this icon but there's also some of them are like some of them move around so so for example at the xenophon mm -hmm. monastery they have an icon that comes from another monastery i think it's from if you're wrong i might be wrong or vatopedi i'm not sure uh and the, the story is that one morning the, the monks went into the church and there's this icon and they're like, what, what's this icon doing here? And so they're trying to figure out like where it's from and they kind of ask around and they find out that the, one of the icons in this other monastery is vanished. So they are like, you know, they bring it back mm. they kind of just bring the icon back and they say, we're well, sorry, we don't know what happened. Like, here's the icon. So they give it to the icon. And then the next morning it's back in the, in the, the, uh, the monastery again, back in at Xenophon. And that mm. happens several times. Hmm. Until basically, like one of the elder monks at the monastery at the at the monastery where the icon was from says, you know, I think she wants to, she wants to be at your monastery. So let's just leave her there. <laughs> there's one icon called the Portaitza icon, which is at Iviron. It's one of the most famous icons at uh, of Mount Athos. It's considered like the protector of Mount Athos. It's like the hmm. icon of the gate, which is what portraits. I mean, and supposedly there's this legend that if that this icon leaves Mount Athos, then that's the end of Mount Athos. Hmm. And so there are all these like legends about during World War II, these mon these monks would like walk for like three four hours to come to check if the icon was still there. You know, wow. they they come several. There, many monks would just like come in and like ask you know, if the icon is still there because everything was not going well. Let's say it's like monitoring the possible end of the world. The end of <laughs> the yeah, monitoring the possible end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so uh, Jonathan, like, is it like the the icons have a life of their own, or is it just like the mysterious component of reality? Like, what's happening there? No, but I mean, the image in the Orthodox tradition becomes a vector for, for holiness and becomes a vector for, mm -hmm. and so just like, just like relics, just like in the gospel, just like in the, the acts of the apostle, you know, the, 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 um, the, 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 the shadow of St. Peter or the, the scarf of St. Paul mm -hmm. would become play vectors of the miraculous, you know, in the Orthodox church icons have become that. So they just become a place where the miraculous is concentrated. 
mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say it. You know, it's yeah. It's just wow. it, it, there's there's no. Uh, I don't I don't I don't try to account for the mechanical causes for these things. You know, mm. yeah. And I don't try. It's best not probably not to try to do that. It's just it it just yeah. that's it. They these icons become places where people are healed they become places where people's answered prayers are answered they become places where all these things happen you know little holy places Mm. now so your your son was turning 18 um, yeah and you know i just read that and it makes because like i mentioned i have a six-year-old daughter as my eldest and so like i think about that you know one eight i think about the that transition from you know adolescence in in the home to then transitioning out of the home and you know independence and self-sufficiency kind of like a distinct identity Mm. um but here Mm. in the west there really isn't like rituals that surround you know that passage you know from one stage to the next and i wonder was this pilgrimage some type of like rite of passage for your your son and your family well that's the way i saw it you know we did when my son was when our kids turned hit puberty, <clears throat> we 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 kind of devised this this little initiation thing. You know, my son, for example, we rented a cabin, and then I got all the men from the family, you know, all the Christian men, to come. Uh, and uh, you know, I I I got him like a knife when he was like twelve or thirteen, or just turned thirteen, and yeah, you know, like yeah. just you know, the basic, basic things. And, and so we did that with our daughters as well, with the women of the family, there's the women meeting together and kind of doing this blessing and this, this kind of uh, advice and prayer and stuff um, and celebration of the life also of the person. Uh, so I think that's important because they don't, we don't have that naturally anymore. We have to be deliberate about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for sure, this pilgrimage, that's what was the point. It was kind of like, all right, you know, the three Pajot men, Two generations kind of spending bonding together spending time together hearing some stories uh, it was wonderful because my father you know something happened to him while we were in the church and praying and in the silence for so long it kind of un- it kind of provoked all these memories that he kind of dwelled on for a long mm. time so he just kind of started telling us stories of his young life and his relationship with his siblings and his his parents and you know uh so it was quite touching it was really a great time Mm. Wow! I, I recommend. I, I think people have to be deliberate about these these initiations. Now we can't just we can't because the world is <clears throat> we don't have it naturally. It's not it's not part of our world so much. Like it used to, it used to be all kinds of things that were like that. I don't know. Like you, we still have graduation, which is which is important, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't uh, we should take seriously. Like even graduating like elementary school or middle school like we should take those seriously because we don't have a lot of these transition rituals so those that mm-hmm. exist and are part of our world we should uh we should engage with them mm-hmm. when i was on um an adventure uh, i accidentally got swept up into a pilgrimage down in mexico uh during holy week okay um, it was completely undeliberate on my part i just happened to be in a place i reached out we my travel buddy and i we reached out to um the local church, Catholic church and said, Hey, like, we're just looking for a place to bed down for the night. We're going to keep traveling. You know, we consider ourselves travelers. Um, and then he was like, Oh, you must be joining for the pilgrimage. You can go sleep with the other pilgrims. And so I was like, <laughs> so uh, we ended up befriending one of the families there. They're like, yeah, we're going to be waking up at like a dark hour of the morning, uh, way before sunrise. Uh, we're going to start this 
trek to the holy site um with flashlights do you have good flashlights you know are you ready to go so <laughs> we ended up like pushing our bikes with this family and they knew all of the old paths you know in and around all the old farms and around the hills and they take us to the holy site where there was uh um a miracle working um icon of, of mm-hmm. the virgin of guadalupe and so it was just like at the time it completely blew me away mm. and i started i was right at the precipice of like modern ideas of adventure and travel and thrill seeking and with like you know like documenting yourself on gopros and like we have professional travelers now and then like this this old ancient world of getting swept up into like this pilgrimage where similar to you is like multi-generational it was like the grandpa was there the dad was leading he had his whole family they're all on foot and it was like mm. many days just to to get to this holy site um and so i'm just wondering like just all of your your expertise with you know distinguishing patterns and understanding the you know universal history and ancient world like what would you say is the difference between modern concepts of adventure and um uh, more ancient ones of pilgrimage i mean they're very different obviously so a pilgrimage in some ways is it's a physical enactment of a spiritual journey. So you basically, what you're saying is I want to get closer to God. I want to get closer to, you know, I, I have this problem that I hope God could answer a, a question for me or a prayer for me. And so it's, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to physically enact the movement of going towards a play, a holy place so that <clears throat> you could say, so that also, this is something that'll happen within me. Like there'll be a transformative, there'll be a connection between me, like walking towards this holy place, becoming more and more aware of it, becoming more and more aware of the importance of, of that, which is transcendent of God's place in my life. You know, so it's, it's all this conjunction of things together to make, to make uh, it more real in your life by engaging it, you know, directly, like, like you said, like, if you, if you spend a week walking towards something, it's going to become important. I don't know what to tell you, right? Right. It, right. It, it, there's no way around that because you're going to spend all this effort, all this energy, you know, moving towards your destination. And if that destination is one which is related to your faith and to the most important things, then that's what's going to happen. It's going to make those important things more vivid to you, more present to you, more part of your life. And so I think that that's really the that's a way for modern people to understand pilgrimage and the importance of pilgrimage. You know, it has to do with attention and effort. Uh, and it, and like I said, it, it makes something literally more important for you because you're, you're spending all that energy on it. Yeah. Yeah. And almost like I, I see people engaging with, you know, adventure, um, almost like a low resolution pilgrimage. You know, like the patterns are there. It's like, yeah, they uh, book a year in advance to go to Yosemite, let's say, and to go see the one of the most beautiful valleys in the world. And, you know, so there is intention. There's there's components of what you said. But yeah, um, yeah. People save up all let's save up for like years to go to Disneyland. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, like that's that's that these are these are real things. And I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with going to Disney or whatever or to going to to all these places. It's just it's just about hierarchy. Right. You know, it's just about what is it that you're going to spend a lot of time putting effort into and and uh, it's 
So I think definitely a pilgrimage. You know, we also went to Jerusalem last year. Mm. Uh, you know, it was obviously for work. Part was for work with Daily Wire, but there was a pilgrimage aspect to it. Um, and I definitely recommend it to anyone, you know. Mm. Just sometimes it can be little things, you know, like here, it's interesting, you know, here near where I am, there's a, a there's a, a native reservation. Uh, and a long time ago, the, the priest of the area built on this little mount, they built a uh, way of the cross on the mount. So it's actually these little stone huts with like carvings inside them with like these, mm -hmm. like these, like low, these relief carvings of different stations of the cross. And, uh, you know, and people used to, to, to go there as a pilgrimage. Now it's become like a state, you know, like a provincial park or whatever. <clears throat> but the, they're still there, these carvings. Wow. They're actually redone by a carver that was one of my teachers a, a while ago. But, you know, you can go there. Like my wife, she goes there all the time. And she goes there. Sometimes she goes there every day. And she just goes up. Mm. And, and she just takes a little moment, like not much. She takes a little moment, you know, when she walks past these, the stations of the cross to kind of just stop and meditate and to remember. Mm. Uh, and for her, it really is a transformative thing that she's participating in. It really is very deeply part of her spiritual life. You know, and so there are little things you can do that are enacting what's important to you. Mm. It doesn't have to be going to Jerusalem or going to Mount Athos, but, um, but yeah, sometimes there are little, little versions of that. Mm. I wonder, like you mentioned memory, how is the, how does that play out in the, the, the practice of pilgrimage? Well, usually when you're going to pilgrimage, you're going to, to a place that is important in the past, hmm. uh, that or at least connecting you to something in the past, something related to origin or to, you know, like when you're going to Jerusalem, obviously you're going to the place where Christ lived. And so, you know, it is a form of active memory, like walking mm. on the same paths, you know, going to the same places, ritually participating is a form of, of, uh, of active memory. Hmm. Well, Jonathan, uh, I guess what was like any big takeaways or how did the trip, um, you know, fill you with hope? Oh, it definitely filled me with hope. I mean, seeing the monasteries also having all these people there and seeing the, you know, the life of Monathos quite active, uh, gave me hope seeing a bunch, a lot of young monks gave me hope, mm. you know, reminded me of some of the things that is, that are happening now in North America and the Orthodox churches with, with all these, these waves of young people. So I would say it definitely gave me hope, you know? Um, and also, I mean, I think it, you know, I cause I'm, I'm so busy and I get distracted and I have all these things going on, but it really was a moment of refocusing and, and helping me re remember why I'm doing the things I do. Because just like mm -hmm. everyone, sometimes I get lost in the whirlwind. It's like, I'm doing all mm -hmm. these things, but I can forget why I'm doing them. Like what's the, what's really the point of this. Mm -hmm. And I think going there and spending so much time in silence and prayer was good because it, it reminded me of what's really at the, at the core. Mm -hmm. All right, Jonathan. Thanks for talking today. Cool. Yeah. I love to hear these stories, man. These are great. Good conversation. Yeah. yeah give me ideas for whenever my kids turn 18. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have, like I said, just, we do have to be deliberate about it, you know? So, yeah. All right. Well, good to talk to you, man. Best of luck. Uh, go check out the Kickstarter, folks. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.